Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. You're listening to New Books and Geography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host for today, Stentor Danielson, from the Department of Geography, Geology, and the Environment at Slippery Rock University. Today, I'll be talking to Phaedra Petzulo, author of Beyond Straw Men, Plastic Pollution and Networked Cultures of Care, published this year by University of California Press. Dr. Petzulo, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. To start off, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about your background and how you came to write this book? This is actually a big question, so I apologize for my big answer. I'll try to be more brief than the others, but I think origin stories are complicated. So I'm going to share two moments that led me to writing this book with a bit of background in the middle. Um, First, to take people back, and I apologize for the trauma of 2016, but some listeners who are on social media might remember what disability justice advocate Alice Wong calls the straw wars. In the United States, we were on the precipice of electing the 45th president of the United States, and people were having knockdown, drag out fights over single use plastic straws, of all things. People were really heavily invested in this. As an environmental studies scholar, I was curious why the plastic straw and why now? I long have made more sustainable lifestyle choices, like bringing my reusable bag to the grocery store every week, but I didn't really understand why these choices were sparking such strong affective reactions. Then in 2020, as I was researching more uh, about the conditions of possibility for these online debates, a graduate student at University of California, Irvine, who had read my earlier work, tagged me on social media to register for a virtual toxic tour. So now a bit of background. As an interdisciplinary environmental studies scholar who has training in natural resource sciences, political economy, social thought, and communication, I've been studying environmental injustices since the early 1990s. My first single authored book in 2007 was about toxic tours, which are non-commercial expeditions hosted by fence line or frontline communities trying to raise awareness about the harms of the petrochemical industries. And back in the day, they were all in person on buses, bikes, or walking. Since these tours have gone online, and I realized as I listened to this virtual toxic tour in 2020 of testimonies from anti-plastic pollution advocates who are from the Gulf Coast of the United States and Southeast Asia and Vietnam, and um, that these two struggles, the one over single-use plastics and the one over resisting petrochemical industries that were disproportionately impacting the same communities, were amplifying the same voices, the Global South and what David Nagy Pello calls the Global South of the North. So as an activist said yesterday in D.C., refusing single-use plastic is divesting from fossil fuels. Beyond Strawman, this new book of mine takes hashtag activism seriously then by considering and going beyond the initial hot takes to try to dwell in and unravel what's being negotiated in the name of plastics, or as I explain in the book, how plastics have become an articulator of the crisis of our times. That is, while I do um, cover how controversies over plastics signify crises about plastics, obviously, they also provide an entry point into a wider range of contemporary contested environmental topics. To analyze that complicated conjuncture, 
I think we need to consider more than statistics about plastic materials and sciences. We need to engage attachments and detachments that arise in public controversies over plastics. Okay, so at the risk of spoiling the joke by explaining it, could you tease out the pun that's in your book title? Since I've been called more than once a Professor Buzzkill, I really do try to find excuses to laugh. So thank you for this question. Uh, Beyond Strawman attempts to engage plastics-related hashtag activism in ways that don't fall for or create strawman fallacies, which set up an imagined opposition for the purpose of showing how easily it can be torn down. But I also do like the feminist play on words. A strongman argument is named as such due to the androcentrism of the English language and argumentation. So part of the book does focus on plastic straws and the work of the advertising industry to sell us more and more plastics, which mostly has been done by people who call themselves ad men. How did plastic straw bans become a major focus for environmentalists and what kind of resistance or pushback has arisen against them? There are many reasons, but I'll share two. First, plastics are a massive issue related to consumption, climate chaos, waste colonialism, public health, environmental justice, and more. Some environmentalists have started to advocate for bans of single-use plastics because, as I explained in the book, these are considered gateway plastics. That is, they're relatable, everyday objects that make it easier to start conversation about the bigger problems of single-use plastics or plastics in general, like plastic bottles or plastic straws. Second, U.S. environmentalists that started with plastic bags found them to be challenging to ban. In 2008, when environmentalists tried to place a 20-cent plastic bag fee in Seattle, the American Chemistry Council spent almost $1.5 million to overturn the fee, the most money spent on any referendum in that city to date. As a point of contrast, the first country in the world to ban plastic bags was Bangladesh in 2002. So the U.S. is far behind victories of environmental advocates in the global south on this topic. And then uh, how about some of the kinds of resistance or, or pushback that have happened against these straw ban efforts? Well, in the book, I talk about resistance from multiple locations. Um, A lot of times people like to pit it as resistance versus institutionalization or dominant people in power. But plastics really get messy. So on the conservative side, there's um, resistance from the American Chemistry Council, who does um, count on single-use plastics as their plan B for fossil fuels. So as we are transitioning, though very slowly, away from fossil fuels, Um, corporations are using single-use plastics to make up for that loss in revenue as an energy source by pushing more and more single-use plastics. There are far more single-use plastics in our everyday life now than there were 20 years ago. And that's not by accident. That's um, a purposeful campaign. And so since single-use plastics are made from fossil fuels, the industry is really interested in supporting that. And so they push back against the bans. um, And in the United States, there's actually some cities and states that have preemptively said you can't have a ban. Um, And that's from um, a viewpoint that continues to be extractivist, pro-capitalist growth, and believes that we shouldn't change our lifestyle in any way to our way of living or our culture in any way to address the climate crisis. But there's also resistance from progressives. So part of what I engage in the book are disability justice advocates who, when the issue came up in Seattle, for example, in those initial hashtag debates I was telling you about, um, asked why the plastic straw and why were we having this conversation um, without any voice or feedback from the people most 
impacted by a ban on plastic straw, which they argued were people who need plastic straws in order to live. And so I also interview multiple disability justice advocates to talk about how that could have been handled differently, what eco-ableism is, and the ways the environmental movement to be more inclusive um, could improve in the future. Yeah, I think that idea of eco-ableism is a pretty important one that comes up in the book. I wonder if you could just say a few more words about what eco-ableism means. Yeah. Um, eco-ableism is a term that's used by activists. Um, it's not just an academic term, um, but it's talking about ableism, which is a society that is designed for people with a certain normative body and assumes that that is the ideal body and that bodies that aren't functioning, working, living in the same way um, are expendable or marginalized or so insignificant we don't have to pay attention. And so the most extreme ableist discourses people probably know are from eugenics. Um, so there's a there's discourse from you know World War II and many other periods in the early 20th century um, where people argued that people with disabilities should go to concentration camps because they were not part of... Um, the ideal human body. Um, Ego-ableism brings that discourse into conversation with environmental discourses where people say, oh, we're trying to create a more sustainable world for all. Um, but then they end up in these discourses thinking about for example, as, as one writer's talked about, um, stigmatizing the sound of a wheelchair on a trail, but they don't stigmatize the sound of a dog or a kid crying or laughing on a trail. And so environmental discourse in all these very subtle and then sometimes explicit ways can reinforce what is a good way to interact with nature, what's a good way to interact with the world. And um, sometimes some people are really not thinking about the range of bodies that that should be calling in. Okay. And then how are the risks and benefits of plastic distributed unequally along gender lines as well? Yeah, in terms of who benefits, Stacey Alimo has coined a wonderfully rich term called carbon aggressive masculinity, or what she calls the hegemonic masculinity of impenetrable aggressive consumption, which I draw on throughout the book to consider various figures in what I call the plastics industrial complex, including founders of petrochemical companies to add men that promote them. In terms of gender inequalities beyond jobs as waste pickers and domestic laborers, the UN identifies disproportionate toxic exposure of plastic plastics on women through everyday lived experiences, including makeup and childbearing risks. In a case study of Ghana, a World Economic Forum report claims the plastic value chain is, quote, a near perfect example of how gender norms and roles lead to inequalities when they are not dressed head on, end quote. And uh, for those that haven't read the book, I, I do also emphasize, and part of why I like Stacey Alimo's work is she does as well, that I use pronouns and when I'm saying um, gender lines and women, I'm talking about people who identify as women. Um, and I follow people's lead and right to have the dignity to identify with whatever gender they prefer. Okay, so hashtag activism often gets a bad rap, like it's not quote unquote real activism. So why did you focus on hashtag activism and what kind of difference has it made in the world? 
I focus on hashtag activism because it does make a difference. Um, as anyone that knows me knows, I'm I'm not the most tech savvy person. I was not the first person to adopt Twitter. I'm still skeptical, even more so of X. Um, but advocates of reducing plastic pollution, regaining political victories, and becoming featured in presidential debates in the United States, in large part due to successful hashtag activism. In Kenya, in the book, I talk about hashtag campaign that was created for galvanizing the final push to ban plastic bags there. In Vietnam, I talk about how hashtag activism became critical for anti-pollution activists in an authoritarian regime. And in the U.S., I engage disability justice advocates, as we talked about, who use them critically to intervene in eco-ableist discourses online and found that online forums allowed them a way, a way to intervene in public discourse that they didn't have otherwise. But I also talk about how, for example, in Kenya, organizers walk the streets to do grassroots organizing and government officials were lobbying offline. So I think they're complementary in their best moments. And why is care such an important concept for you? When we stay in a crisis frame, as environmental discourses often do, our politics can only be reactionary. Care, which I consider to be a dialectic of crisis, opens up space to dream of the world we want in ways that exceed crisis. Also, feminists and marginalized people, indigenous epistemologies, black futurists, a whole line of black radicals and so forth, have long valued care, even as dominant society does not pay or value that work. We need care to survive because we realize we cannot as individuals. And you, you mentioned Stacey Alimi a little earlier, uh, but then another person that you cite frequently in the books is Max Liboron. So how does their work contribute to yours? It's such an honor to have Max blurb my book. I'm glad you noticed their influence. Um, their book that came out while I was writing my own is Pollution is Colonialism. I think, I hope anyone listening uh, reads that book. It's excellent. It does amazing, interesting work with footnotes um, that I think just methodologically alone is worth the price of the book. But as an author, I was in this terrible position of wondering whether or not I should finish my own book now that theirs was out in the world. Um, and that book provides two key assumptions that inform my own, um, though we've had many conversations since. First, plastic needs an S on the end, they argue, because there's so many different types of plastics that we need to underscore the complexity of plastics as a discarded material. And second, Lebron articulates plastic is, I'm sorry, pollution is colonialism and therefore plastic is colonialism, plastic pollution. And it's pivotal to my book insofar as I'm attempting to reorient readers to think about single-use plastics through the global South as a place and as an epistemological resource. Lebron's work comes from um, thinking about indigeneity more specifically and the relationship between plastic pollution and its impacts on indigenous communities, especially, especially coastal communities. And I'm engaging different communities, but I see our arguments as uh, very much compliments. And then in addition to being here on uh, my podcast, you have your own podcast called Communicating Care. So how did producing that podcast tie into the writing of this book? Yeah, just to be clear, I have no business having a podcast. I don't have a lovely voice like you, and I don't have a production team. But in 2020, like most people listening, I was quarantined. And my research ethic requires I talk to people if I can't find their perspectives in archives or in other public records. So with less carbon footprint than flying all over the world, 
I decided to invite people to talk with me on a podcast that had not existed before. And this allowed me to circulate their ideas for readers to hear longer conversations with people trying to make the world a better place at various scales of social change from nations to cities to the Global Plastics Treaty. So I actually... Um, did it out of feeling like I was in a corner and that's all I could do and ended up really falling in love with it because I was able to have conversations with people in Bangladesh and Kenya and um, other locations around the world. And now when people read the book and I only say two sentences from the whole conversation for some people, people can go and listen to the entire conversation and hear their story in their own words. And I just think it's an invaluable resource. Yeah, it's great to be able to have that additional stuff um, for a, a work that's working with qualitative information, you know, kind of almost the equivalent of, you know, posting data sets online for quantitative kind of uh, research. Yeah, that's a great analogy. Yeah. So you've given some really admirably concise and, uh, you know, right to the point answers to most of the questions I had. So uh I now want to start moving towards the end of our interview and first give you an opportunity to give a shout out or a thank you to anyone whose help was important to you as you're writing this book. There are so many people I want to thank. And for people who see my book, um, I take writing acknowledgments quite seriously, as I hope people notice. Um, actually, my first monograph um, a textbook used my acknowledgments to uh, give an exemplar of ethos and how someone establishes ethos. And so I felt very self-conscious writing my acknowledgments this time in case it became a textbook example. And um, also the past few years have been particularly trying in my life. And I'm grateful to have people in my life who care. So um, of course, course, like first and foremost, I have to thank um, the activists that I engage. So all the proceeds of my book are contracted to go to two NGOs that were featured on my podcast in the first season when I didn't even have a website. I had no track record. Um, and they're quoted in the book. So Eco Rethink is based in Nakuru, Kenya, and they do a lot of work on um, plastic waste and water quality and human rights and social justice activism. And then Justice for Famosa Victims is based in Point Comfort, Texas, United States. They actually just did another virtual toxic tour last night with communities in southern Louisiana and Texas. Um, and Taiwan. And I'm grateful to these activists and more who spoke with me with everything going on in the world when it was going on in the world and everything that they do on top of their everyday lives. Um, I, I was I was very humbled and appreciative. And that brings us to our traditional final question on the NBN, which is what are you working on next? It's so cruel because my book just came out center, but <laughs> obviously I'm doing more podcasts and talks and virtual class visits with people who are just finding their way to the work. I do. Um, after I had that gut reaction, I was like, oh, but I am also, of course, working on things, which is probably why you wisely asked this. Um, I'm presenting on research in a couple of weeks on collaborative work I've been involved in on climate impacts on incarceration infrastructure. So another thread of the book um, that I hadn't mentioned yet is I am very much invested in, as many people in geography are, are um, the, a conversation about abolition. And I find that most environmental studies students never have one class uh, related to policing 
or punitive policies at all. And yet, if you look at most environmental policies, they involve people going to jail or having fines and so forth. And usually not the massive multi-billion dollar corporations that are causing the most environmental harm, but usually everyday people, as I talk about in my chapter with Kenya. So part of why I wrote about Kenya is they were making international headlines as, quote, the strictest plastic ban in the world. And what they meant by that is that they had more jail time and higher fines than anywhere in the world. And so I've been working with local activists and activists in California and Texas and New York um, with people who were incarcerated who had truly horrible experiences during quarantine and the height of the pandemic. And um, drawing upon climate experts to think about um, if we think about climate disasters, which we know are going to become more frequent and worse unless we have radical climate action, people who are disproportionately impacted are those who are incarcerated. And if we can think about how to become more attuned to the challenges they're facing, I think we'll become more attuned not only to their humanity, but to all of ours. So that's a big project I've been working on. And I'm also editing a special issue of the Journal of Environmental Communication on Care, uh, which uh, has authors from around the world, which should be out in early 2024. So I do hope more people read Jan Stroman since it just came out and that is really what I've been working on um, but most notably because in November is a global gathering for a global plastics treaty and I think it's very important that we loop back to these conversations about justice and equity and gender and sexuality and abolition um, and racism and colonialism when we're trying to think through what a just environmental policy could be. Yeah, well, I'll definitely endorse reading this book as a way to get a handle on what's coming with the Global Plastics Treaty that you mentioned. Um, so thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much. This has been a conversation with Phaedra Petzulo, author of Beyond Straw Men, Plastic Pollution and Networked Cultures of Care published this year by University of California Press.